I'll invite you to find 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You'll want to follow along in your Bibles this Sunday. There's not going to be any scripture actually projected. I'd like for you to see it in your Bibles, even if it's a slightly different translation than my ESV translation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 31. So we're working our way through 1 Corinthians, just letting the Lord guide us as we go. Um, Not sure how long we'll be in the book, but it was prayer that brought us to the book. So I'm very confident that he means to speak to us through these verses this morning to specifically those he brought here this morning. The overall premise of our study of 1 Corinthians has been that the church is imperfect, but has been giving has been given a glorious calling and everything necessary to fulfill it. So the church, including Doolin's Grove and including the whole Advent Christian denomination, including all Christians across the world, across history, is not perfect. It is imperfect, but it has been given a holy and glorious calling and every resource needed to fulfill that calling. So when I say the church, I don't mean an impersonal institution. I mean you and me. You are imperfect. But in Christ, you are given a glorious calling and everything necessary to fulfill it. And as we do that together, we are the church. In fact, God uses our imperfection to fulfill his glorious purposes in us. That's how good and amazing our God is. So before we read it, I just want to remind you a little bit about the context of of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So it's the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the Christians who are in the city of Corinth. Now, these Christians are a troubled bunch. They have a lot of problems, and we're going to read through these problems as Paul addresses them through the book. But the problem that he's addressing right now in 1 Corinthians 1 is the fact that there are divisions in the church, Because people are breaking off into these little fan clubs, supporting different church leaders. So you have the Paul fan club who loves Paul and they, you know, wear the Paul t-shirt and they have the Paul sticker on the back of their cars. Then you have the Apollos fan club and they support Apollos. And then you have the Cephas fan club and then you have the Jesus fan club. Now, obviously we know they should all be in the Jesus fan club, but they're breaking up into these different divisions and Paul doesn't like it. God doesn't like it. And in studying his correction to this issue, we learn a lot about ourselves and about the church and about Jesus Christ. So that's kind of what's going on. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. And I'll give you my, my big idea, my sermon in a sentence up front. Now, see if this does not capture your imagination. God glorifies himself through the demographic makeup of his church. Can't you picture that on a best-selling book on the front bookshelf? God glorifies himself through the demographic makeup of his church. Now, if that title doesn't grip you, that's okay and understandable. But the truths beneath that title that we're going we're gonna to find in this passage are awesome. So look for them as we read 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now let's pray together before we study this passage. Father, we recognize that in order for us to read your holy scripture and to understand more than just the logical factual points of it, but the deeper spiritual realities of it, that we need your miraculous intervention in these moments. We need your help. We need you to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. I need you to help me serve your people well. Or may your word be clear. May it be clear and concrete to each and every person here this morning. Help us to understand it and help us to receive it, to fully embrace it, receive it, and be changed by it. Lord, we trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. God glorifies himself through the demographic makeup of his church. Uh, The most important word in that sentence is the word God. And that's what I want to talk to you about first. Um, as I mentioned, I got to teach a camp of the older, I mean, a class of the older count, um, campers at camp. That was a tough sentence for me for some reason. The theme for the week was just be. And it was from Joshua 1.9 where God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous and all these things. Um, but I actually wasn't very clear on what the theme was, all I knew was just be. That's what they gave me. Um, so I chose to try to teach them what the Bible says about who we are, our identity, who we be as Christians. And it occurred to me that the best place to start with that is God himself, because God is our creator. God is our designer. God was here long before any human was here. God is the eternal one. From God springs everything. So I don't think that we can understand who we be without understanding God himself. And I don't think we can understand who we are as a church without understanding God himself. So we start with God. And we notice that God is the main character in the passage we just read. Really, God is the main character, period. He's the main character of the Bible. Many people get frustrated as they read the Bible because... It's not like a self-help book with a lot of tips and tricks. It's mainly about somebody other than us. It's mainly about God. God is actually the main character of your life. We're born thinking that we're the main character of our life. But we're not. We're secondary characters in our own lives. God is the main character. All of history is mainly about God, not humanity. Church is mainly about God, not the people. 
These moments right now, is main, these moments are mainly about God and not us. And we see in our passage here that God is the actor. Look back in your Bibles. Look at starting at verse 27. No, let's start at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chose. Why are you here this morning? Because of your choice or because, because of God's choice? Now, obviously, you had choice in the matter, and we talked about this when we studied Romans, and I'm not going to open that whole Pandora's box about free will and God's sovereignty, other than just to say that it's inescapable that God is sovereign. I do believe that humans also have free will, but God chose. God builds his church with the people he chooses. Now, for us this morning, the main point I want to extract from that is that we need to beware of a me mindset as we go about being Christians and go about being part of the church. The me mindset strangles the Christian life in us. We need the God mindset, not the me mindset. The me mindset says, I choose to be here. The God mindset says, God chose me to be here. Now, yes, you did choose to be here, but it's not merely that. You're not merely here because you chose to. Above that, working through that and underneath that is God's choice to bring you to Christ, to bring you into the church. It's the difference between coming to church and coming to Christianity saying, what's in this for me? And coming to church and Christianity saying, what's in me for this? It's not, why am I choosing this? It's why did God choose me for this? It's the difference between sitting in the pew, arms crossed, tapping your foot, entertain me. What's in this for me? Speak better, Matt. You're boring me. What kind of title is this? This music isn't my style. All about me, 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 my preferences. Versus knowing that you are here because of divine intentions beyond you that you don't fully understand that God brought you here for a purpose. So instead of sitting back, arms crossed, tapping your toe, waiting to be dazzled, it's edge of your seat, eyes fixed, wondering, God, what are you up to? What are you up to in this church? What are you up to in me? Not here for your purposes, but here for God's purposes. God is the main character. Because God is the main character, because he is the one who chose, that means that you are here for purposes that are beyond you. You have your purposes for why you came this morning, and many of those were good, and maybe some of those weren't so good. Who knows? It's all kind of a mix. You know, you come because you, that's what you do on Sundays. You come because that's the expectation. Uh, you come because spiritually you feel dry and you need to be nourished. You come because you want to worship 
with other Christians, all the different reasons why you came, there's a, a reason with a capital R that's working underneath that and through that. And that's God's reasons for why you're here. God's reasons for why he chose you to be a Christian. Why he chose you to be a part of Doolin's Grove. God has glorious purposes for us. Which brings me to the second point. God glorifies himself. That's just what God does. He glorifies himself. His goal is his glory. That's his goal with everything that he does is his own glory. It's really helpful to know that about God because otherwise you could mistakenly think that God exists to worship us, but he doesn't. God doesn't worship us. That would be idolatry. God's goal is his own glory, not our glory. Now, I want to prove that to you in a couple of passages. First, Isaiah, no, 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 not that one. Isaiah 48, 11. So I'm taking an Old Testament class right now. And uh, we're just about halfway through the Old Testament. And I'm observing all this backbreaking work God did on behalf of his people, Israel. And they were not a great people. I mean, they, they really messed things up more often than not. But God goes out of his way to bless this people and protect this people and preserve this people and to bring them out of slavery in Egypt and to provide for them in the wilderness and to do all these amazing, mighty works. And then in Isaiah forty-eight eleven, he reveals why. Why is he doing all this? It can't be because Israel's so great, because they're not. Isaiah forty-eight eleven, he says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So all that he did through the Old Testament, all those great Old Testament stories that you read, David and Goliath, the, uh, the Ten Plagues of Egypt, the Ten Commandments, all these things. Why was God doing this? For his own sake, for his glory. And that's not just what he did in the Old Testament. That's what he does now in the New Testament, the New Covenant. One of the most glorious passages in the New Testament is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. It just lays out in beautiful language all the blessings that we have as Christians. And I want to read it, and I want you to watch for why is God doing all this for us through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I know it's hard to follow all this listening to it, 
But God has done glorious, wonderful, awesome things for us through Jesus Christ. Why? So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? Why has he given us this inheritance? To the praise of his glory. That's what motivates him. The praise of his glory. Now you might think, oh, isn't that bad? It seems selfish. It seems a little narcissistic, God. Well, that's because we're used to thinking on the human level. It's bad for a human to think that way and operate that way. It would be bad for me to only do a nice thing for you so that you could in turn praise and glorify me. That sort of negates the good deed, doesn't it? Well, it's only bad for me to be self-glorifying because I'm not God. So for me to be self-glorifying is idolatry. But God is God. So anything less than self-glorification from God would be idolatry. So God is the only being in reality for whom it is good to glorify himself. In fact, that's the highest good for God to glorify himself through what he does in us. Because he's God. That's what he's up to. That's the purpose beneath all the other purposes. That's the goal beneath all the other goals. His glory. So we see in our passage, his motivation. It says in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Everything he has done for us, he has done in such a way so as to silence human boasting and to increase worship. God glorifies himself, which brings me to the last point. God glorifies himself through the demographic makeup of the church. I want to just walk through the passage and look at how God glorifies himself through the makeup of the church, the specific people he chooses, the kinds of people that he chooses. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. This verse actually, I don't know if Meredith remembers this, but when I first became your pastor, I felt very insufficient for the task. That really has not changed, by the way, now that I'm in, I guess, my seventh year. But at times, that was more severe than others. I mean, I wasn't like in the fetal position, weeping in the corner or anything, but it was intimidating. And uh, Meredith actually wrote this verse and put it on a sticky note on our bathroom mirror. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's a reminder that he didn't choose me to be your pastor because of how wise I am and how powerful I am and, and the nobility of my family line or anything like that. And he didn't choose any of you for any of those reasons either. In fact, 
the majority of the Christian church is not made up of what the world would deem the wisest, most powerful people. You know, Christianity tends to spread most rapidly through the poorer segments of society. The ones with the least power, the least education, the least wealth. Now, why is that? It didn't have to be that way. It could have been that God chose to bring the most wealthy and the most acclaimed into the church. Yeah, I remember back in high school, it occurred to me, I should I was always a movie buff. I watched a ton of movies. I loved it. And it occurred to me as I got more and more frustrated with how dark all the movies coming out were and how profane and how vulgar, it occurred to me, well, I should pray for the salvation of these people in Hollywood. And I guess I was particularly into Braveheart or something because I specifically prayed for Mel Gibson. I, whenever, whenever this was, I don't know when Braveheart came out. Maybe I was high school. Maybe it was middle school. But I remember praying for Mel Gibson. God save Mel Gibson. Okay, and then some years later, remember he made The Passion of the Christ? I had forgotten, but then I remembered when I heard that that was coming out. I was like, God must have done it. He answered Matt Broadway's prayer and saved Mel Gibson. Now, you know, the fruit of his life in more recent years doesn't seem to show uh, that he is a Christian, but that's you know, not for me to say. But now I realize that's not exactly how God works. See, I thought he'll save you know, Mel, the Mel Gibsons of Hollywood and Hollywood will become a Christianized industry and they'll start pumping out the gospel through their movies and it'll come from, from the most powerful people in our culture and go flow down from there. But God says, no, I don't work like that. I don't want to bring on the A-team of the world's best and brightest to help my cause. I want to do it through the lowly. I want to do it through the non-notables. Through them, I will build my church. Through them, I will establish the unstoppable momentum of the Great Commission throughout human history, the making of disciples of all nations. It's not going to come through the worldly influentials. It's going to come through the lowly ones. Yeah, I remember I worked at a photography studio, and um, one of the people that worked there was in Blowing Rock, near where our campground is. And there's this really nice little stone gas station there. If you remember it, um, she parked there to get gas and she noticed that there was this uh, little sporty car with a California license tag on it. And she went in and checking out at the, at the line was the guy that played Cyclops in the X-Men movies. I can't remember his name. James, I do remember it. James Marsden. Okay. You may not have seen him. He's been in a lot of movies. You know, he's a pretty decent star. He was Cyclops in the X-Men movies and he was the prince in Enchanted. And nothing? You guys know? I forget y'all don't watch movies. Anyway, anybody that she told and that I've told has been like, wow, right here in Blowing Rock? Cyclops? Now imagine if she had been like, hey, Cyclops, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And he came to, to know Christ and uh, turns out his summer home is in Charlotte. And he lives in Arlington Woods, and we didn't realize it. But he starts coming to Doolin's Grove, okay? And, and he starts teaching a Sunday school class. Okay, so now, you know, Tom and Julia and our Sunday school teachers are competing with Cyclops himself, who has a Sunday school class. He dresses up as Cyclops when he teaches. How everybody would start to flock to Cyclops' class, and they would want to, you know, be his student. God doesn't want any of that distraction. 
Now, that's not to say he doesn't love James Marsden and, and Mel Gibson. That's not to say we shouldn't pray for their salvation and that he can't. And he would. But even if he did, he's not going to use their celebrity. He doesn't need their celebrity. And what he likes to do is work through the non-notable people. The people that history is, are, is not going to remember. He likes to work through the churches that history is not going to remember. Now, I've told you many times, my grand vision is that I can be your pastor for 50, 60, 70, who knows what medical technology may allow, 90, 100 more years. And that through us, God will bring about incredible fruit for his kingdom. And that he would do it in such a way that no glory goes to Matt Broadway or Doolin's Grove Church. That Matt Broadway and Doolin's Grove as, as memorable names just sort of disappear. And in place of that, everybody just says, man, God must really be God. Christ must really be the Messiah. And, and many people over the years come into Christ in Charlotte through us, through our faithfulness but that we don't get the glory, that God gets more and more and more glory. That's how he likes to work. And it's so exciting to be caught up into what he's doing. So if you run into Cyclops at a gas station, by all means, do share the gospel with them. Don't shun somebody because they are powerful or important or influential. And God does have people from all social statuses in the church. It's a, it's a mix. But you see through scripture He's kind of preferential to, toward the lowly. You see it in the Beatitudes, which I know we're going to be studying in the adult class. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Like those are the blessed ones in the kingdom of God. It's all upside down from how the world operates. You know, the disciples were not the elite of their day. They were blue-collar fishermen and kind of regular guys. Jesus, when he came, he did not come as a beautiful Hollywood star. Isaiah 53 says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Our Savior himself did not operate according to the worldly standards of what is good and wise and powerful. He supplants all that. He flips it all upside down, especially in how he builds his church. He does it on purpose. The demographic makeup of the church is designed to silence human boasting. The church ought to grow and thrive in such a way that no man can stand up and say, look what I did. It should grow and thrive in such a way that everybody praises God for his work through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. It works through the seemingly foolish, not the seemingly wise, the seemingly weak, not the seemingly strong. Those who seem to be basically nothing in our culture, not those who seem to be really be something. And he does all this to shame and bring to nothing those in the world that would think that they are powerful. See, to become a Christian requires a dramatic escape from the human pride machine. It requires escaping that whole grind of trying to be awesome. And in that way, it's really very relieving. You don't have to try to be awesome. Jesus is awesome. 
God deliberately builds his church using unimpressive people to bring more glory to himself. Now, I want to conclude asking you some questions to sort of get this passage all the way to you and apply it to you. Are you tempted to worship celebrity pastors? This is sort of the first most obvious application of this, these passages in 1 Corinthians 1. Are you tempted to worship celebrity pastors? The guys on TV, the guys with the podcast, the guys publishing tons of books. We can tend to look at these guys like they're the super Christians. They can do no wrong. We'll, we'll follow them. And it's easy to follow them above and, and beyond Christ and follow these guys. And I just want to remind you, they're just... These are just men and women just like us. And they're very fallible. They have sin just like we do. You know, I, there's uh, three men that come to mind in particular that I have read their books and I've listened to their sermons. And um, all three of them have basically lost everything because of immorality. You know, I never would have thought. I thought these were the good guys, you know. You know, one guy, um, C.J. Mahaney, I used to read a lot. He wrote a book called Humility. And he lost his ministry and got kicked out because of pride. This is ironic, I guess. There's another guy named Mark Driscoll. I never felt real comfortable about him, but he's a really gifted teacher. And he just, he teaches the Bible really well. But he, his whole empire just crumbled like a, a, a house of cards because of his arrogance. There's more recently Billy Graham's grandson, Tolian Chavigian. Um, you know, he was sort of an up and coming star and, uh, came out that he had had an affair. And so now he's lost everything. I just don't think, I just don't think any single Christian was meant to be put up there on a pedestal. Now it's not to say don't go read the books of, of popular Christian authors. Maybe they are popular because people are getting the gospel there and it's making a difference, but don't put too much faith in those guys. Always keep your weight on Jesus Christ, not on any teacher, preacher, on TV, on the radio, or even behind this pulpit. Yeah, not that you're tempted to, but please don't worship me. <laughs> worship Jesus Christ. Okay, maybe it'll happen that the Lord will give me greatly increased abilities as your pastor. Maybe, you know, I'll, I'll get very skilled and it might one day become tempting to worship Matt Broadway. Don't ever, ever do that. Or maybe I'll get hit by a bus this week and some new pastor will come in and he'll be awesome. Don't worship that guy either. Worship Jesus Christ. Another question for you. Are you feeling pressure to be awesome as a Christian or for our church, Doolin's Grove, to be awesome? Uh, do you feel threatened when another church seems to be looking a little more snazzy than our church, uh, doing things a little bit better than our church? Do you feel um, jealous about those things? Do you feel, um, do you feel like you can't share the gospel with people at work because you're not awesome enough as a Christian? If any of these things are true for you, I just want to tell you to relax. It's not about how awesome you are or how awesome we are as a church. It's about how awesome Jesus Christ is. You don't have to get to a certain level of perfection before you can share the gospel with somebody because the gospel does not rest on your perfection. It rests on Jesus Christ's perfection.
That's the whole point. In fact, God might use your imperfection to highlight how awesome Jesus is as you share the gospel. Are you feeling bored with your faith or with our church or or disappointed in some way? I want to encourage you to be renewed in your glorious purpose, purpose, which is worship and the glory of God. Sometimes we forget just how high our calling is and we focus on these little trifling aspects of being Christians and being the church. And it can get boring and it can get tedious. I just want you to push all those things to the side and remember God chose you to bring him glory. And he's got many ways he wants to do that through your life. I think a lot of depression and anxiety in our age comes from people who've turned inward instead of upward like we were designed for. I think a lot of the church hopping that you see in our culture and shopping for the church that best suits my needs is because we've forgotten that it's about worship. It's not about suiting our needs. And then the last question, are you growing more passionate about God's glory over time? Are you growing more passionate about God's glory in and through Jesus Christ and the gospel over time? And people ask me all the time, how's it going with the church? And I don't know how to answer it. There's as many answers as there are people. You know, do you, do you answer that question based on attendance figures? Do you answer that question based on giving? Do you answer that question based on how many programs we have running? I think probably the best indicator of how we're doing as a church is, are we growing in our passion for God's glory in Jesus Christ? Now, that's very difficult to measure. In fact, I don't know that I can measure that, but that's what we're after. Consider your calling, brothers. You were called specifically to glorify God through your trust in Jesus Christ, through your being part of this church. It's a glorious calling. It's a refreshing calling. And the good news is it doesn't rest on your shoulders to be awesome and fulfilling it. It rests on your shoulders to trust Jesus Christ and to let God fulfill it through you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 1 Corinthians and the things you address in this book. Lord, I pray that... um, I pray that you would free us from the performance mentality. I pray that you would free us from the me mindset. I pray that you would please free us from anything that would hinder us from living a life of worship. And Lord, may you do great, glorious, wondrous things through us as individuals and collectively as a church. Uh, Change the city, Charlotte, through us. Bring many people to Jesus Christ through us. Um, Help us to witness and share the gospel with everybody we come into contact with. Help us to make disciples. Help us to be your arm in the world. But do it in such a way that you receive all the glory. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to worship you. We want to praise you. We want to lift up the name of Jesus Christ high in our culture because you are worthy. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.